Hello and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. Today, we're chatting with a very special guest, Claire Forrest. Claire is the author of the young adult novel, Where You See Yourself. It's a sweet love story, a coming-of-age tale for college-bound high school seniors, and also an extreme rarity, a story about a disabled teenager written by a disabled author. The book receives starred reviews from both Kirkus and Publishers Weekly, the latter of which just named it one of the best books of 2023. Claire, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to have you here. As I, before we get into Little Women, I just have to tell you, obviously, I loved your book. I read it. I devoured it. As you know, I live vlogged it and was like the audacity of Wilder to bring another girl to the party. I know. And I wrote it. And you wrote it. What are you doing? You write it down. You're like, the audacity of this thing I just created myself. Yeah. (laughs) So... I have been wanting a book like this for years. I think it's been a big gaping hole in YA is a wheelchair using protagonist written by an author who also uses a wheelchair. So tell me about your publication journey. I'm sure you you wanted it just as bad. So <laughs> how did the book begin for you? Walk me through it. Yeah. First of all, I, I just want to highlight how we connected, which I think yes. is a, a rare Prints in this modern internet era, so we connected on threads. Threads! <laughs> Who knew? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the book started for much of the same reasons that you outlined, is that growing up, I never had representation of wheelchair users or even many disabled characters. And so for many, many years, I wrote about non-disabled characters because I thought, Unfortunately, that would what that would be what would eventually get me published. So as I grew older and share my later twenties, I started to think about why is that that I thought that for so long Mm -hmm. and unpacking that. And the book actually had started in my mind just sort of like an ensemble cast story where it was a lot of different high school seniors at the same high school and Maybe one of them can use a wheelchair. <laughs> maybe, maybe there can be some sort of book story, but it's not even a whole book or anything. And then slowly, I just started to say to myself, again, why do I think this? And why can't the whole book just be about Effie? And it went from there. It went from there, yeah. So you... That's interesting to know, because now I'm, I'm thinking about all of Effie's friends and their journey through, and it's so funny to imagine them all just, like, receding to the background so Effie can roll into the spotlight, because it's her time. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. So, when you decided to focus on Effie, the other thing is, this is a story about, kind of, Effie's decision about college. And you chose, I'm going to spoil some things here, but she's kind of between 
two schools. And it's when she goes to UC Berkeley and realizes just how much more accessible it is and how much the phrasing used is it's ready for her. She doesn't have to do any work to make it accessible. It's there. It's ready. I was just reading another book last year called No Pity, which is by my friend's dad, Joe Shapiro, who's a disability journalist. And he, that book, it's funny. It, it covers a lot of how the disability rights movement really began at Berkeley. So I'm wondering, mm-hmm. do you have a particular connection to Berkeley? Was, how did that come into play? That's a really interesting question because around the time that I was developing, oh, I guess I would say a couple of years before I started to develop the book, I really didn't discover that there was a disability rights movement until it was in maybe 24, 25, which is very sad when you think about it. We, I had done AP US history, I had gone to a person <laughs> at college and nobody had ever brought that up to me. It's so interesting it never occurred to me to think about it. And I was actually at a conference call for something and somebody mentioned the name Judy Human and I went and I Googled her and my world <laughs> became in color. <laughs> it was like your brain's kind of explodes. It's interesting because people have had varying reactions to Abby's decision. And I feel like I, as an author, I don't speak for institutions. And so I think sometimes I think about Effie's journey into college and she's still going to face a lot of the same problems that she wouldn't if she had gone anywhere else, mm-hmm. which I think is very realistic of the college experience for any disabled student. I went to Lib Arts College in Iowa and it was accessible to me, but there were still challenges. And so she's still going to have to circumvent stuff and figure it out. And I just love the idea of this young person going off the historical place where all of this happened. Yeah, completely. I if, if anyone is listening and is like, wait, hold on, disability rights movement, Berkeley, what are you talking about? I, I encourage you to go read No Pity. It's a great overview. It, it's an older book. So it's mm-hmm. it was published in the 90s at the end of the 90s. So not the most up to date, but just as a really good overview of the movements toward disability rights in the 80s and 90s. It's exceptional. It goes into all this history. I think you'll really enjoy it. I'm curious as well, when we chatted about you coming on the podcast, you mentioned you you were curious about reading Little Women from a disability perspective. And part of the project of this podcast, and I think kind of a lot of other, there's a whole wing of literary criticism that's like, we never really talked about these books as having disabled characters before, or reading Beth as disabled, or maybe Joe as neurodivergent. Those are new ways of approaching the book. So I'm curious if, do you see where you see yourself fitting into the literary lineage? Are there characters who inspired Effie. Obviously, you were, in in so many ways, your book is brand new territory, but was there anything that fed into or inspired the book? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm trying to think about how to word this. I grew up as a girl in the early 2000s. I was obsessed in Cabot. I was obsessed with Sarah Dessin. And I read all of those books. And it just never really occurred to me that there could be something like that for a disabled audience. And what my favorite reaction to get to the book is when people are like, she's just a normal girl. She's experiencing the same cries, the same lows, the same intricacies of high school disability aside. 
because that's what I've always felt about my life and my high school experience was colored by different experiences because my disability colors every decision that I make in my life, whether it's prominent or not. It's how I experience the world. But at the same time, we, as humans, we all want the same things. We all want to be accepted by our friends. We want to be included. We want to go on fun adventures. And I just really wanted to try to create something like that for today's disabled teens. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so funny that you mentioned Meg Cabot because she, I was also a big Meg Cabot reader and you're above everything else. It's just a really well done princess diary style old school rom-com. <laughs> yeah. I think if you grew up reading Meg Cabot, Sarah Dessen, you'll really like this. I think Becky Albertalli is another name that I would put in there. It's just, you're just adding this new dimension to it, really. Right. It's, it's yeah, it's funny because I kind of, laugh when people say that where you see yourself as a romance. <laughs> I was just in, there's a new romance bookstore in the Twin Cities, and I was just there, and they had the book in stock, and I, I told them, I was like, anytime and <laughs> this, I get really giddy, because I feel like they put me with the cool kids. Yes! <laughs> and it's, to me, it's such a coming of age with a romantic element, rather <laughs> than romance itself, which is also what I feel about Certainly Sarah Dessen and some of Big Cabot's titles as well. Yeah. I'm also, I'm wondering, were there disabled characters or even disabled writers who kind of led into Effie? You mentioned Judy Human, and that, that's what, kind of what I was thinking of when I meant influences. Who are the people and fictional characters who shaped Effie and her world? So I didn't just stop when I, you know, discovered that there had been a disability rights movement, which they realized mm -hmm. that when you discover a, pull, a whole piece of history that relates directly to your life mm -hmm. and the rights that you have as a person <laughs> in society, that's to me symbol that I have a lot of work to do. And I still see mm -hmm. that work ongoing every day. But big shout out to Rebecca Tosic. She's sitting pretty on Instagram. <laughs> she writes these brilliant short essays as well as she has a memoir. Amani Birbin is big on social media and there's Crutches and Spice, and gosh, who else? Alice Wong. I mean, there's yep. so many brilliant disabled writers on the internet doing valuable work that helped me unpack a lot of my internalized ableism, which, which is honestly what got me to the point where I can could write Effie's story. Yeah. That's, I'm so, yeah, I'm so glad. Alice Wong has definitely come up on the show before. <laughs> it's, it's funny that you mention her. I think she is just a really foundational writer on disability and an important voice for anyone to check out. Another important voice is the voice that reads the audiobook of Where You See Yourself, and that is the voice of none other than Tony Award winner, Ali Stroker. So I stand. <laughs> what oh, was it God. like to work with her? I will admit to being a recovering link is... <laughs> big fan. So I watched a show that probably a lot of geeks remember. It was called The Glee Project, and it was I illegally streamed it on Mega Video in 2011. <laughs> I think it was all the oxygen or something, and I didn't have a channel. And I was rooting so hard for and Windows. The idea was that it was a bunch of artists competing for a guest role yep. the next season of Glee, and she did not win. She made the, I believe, the finals. Don't quote me on that, but. And then I was just such a fan of her ever since. Mm -hmm. I remember I watched 
her totally acceptance speech on a flight and I cried. It was, it was beautiful. <laughs> she, and I, my other dad asked me to make a list of people who we might want to send the book to. And I put Allie Stoker in the parentheses. I put a girl can dream. And so <laughs> to get here was like, <laughs> it was great. I still can't it happened. Like anytime somebody mentions it, I'm like, what? <laughs> You manifested that, is what you did. You wrote it down and you said, Ali Stroker, a girl can dream. And you dreamed. <laughs> Actually, it was not me that manifested it. It was me, the lovely Erin Erstale, who is a middle grade author here in Minneapolis. She is a mentor and a friend of mine. And before I even went out on submission, she texted me and she was like, we should get your ARC, your manager copy to Ali Stroker. And I said, and I don't know the ARC, and I'm going to book you. <laughs> I know that you have to sell the book first. I'm thinking ahead. And then my mind was like, why would she ever read something that I had written? And so when it came through that she's going to do it, I texted <laughs> Anne and she just wanted, I'm crying. Wow. Okay. So it was a, that was, it was a multi person manifestation, yeah. is what it was. It was the power yeah. of friendship. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? She actually was on Glee for a couple episodes. It wasn't yep. a permanent spot, but I, and I think, I think I rewatched all of Glee a couple of years ago after Naya Rivera passed because my heart needed it. And it hasn't aged well, <laughs> to say the least. No one, yeah. one of the, yeah, one of the parts that has aged the most poorly, I would say, is the character of Artie, who is not just a, able-bodied actor in a wheelchair. I think I'm watching another show called Superstore, which has an able-bodied character in a wheelchair, and that character is done much more respectfully and with a lot more humanity than Glee ever did R.D. Abrams. <laughs> but I think it was, even though she was only on the show for a short time, I think just her presence and warmth and lived experience really gave the show an integrity that it had been sorely lacking <laughs> so yeah it's so interesting yes. to think about the, the 2010s is just a different time in media but it was you know <laughs> no, and, truly and i think when because i remember watching glee and being so excited that there was the character in our wheelchair and i didn't <laughs> i knew that he wasn't disabled but to me yeah. it was the one of the only things that I've had. And so I think I've done a lot of that unpacking since the show went off there. It's a lot of people have. And I think yeah. as Kevin McHill has and Ali has, mm -hmm. like, I've have spoken on that. Yeah. And things that they've done since. So it's interesting to see the progression. Yeah, for sure. And I, I know that Kevin McHale has had a very interesting post-Glee journey, which I encourage you all to check out. Yes, but we love Ali Stroker. The book is just lovely, whatever format you read it in, but Ali really brought it to the audiobook and became Effie. So that was, I highly recommend you listen to that. Now, I think we should get into Little Women, speaking of media and aging, because <laughs> this book is over 150 years old. What is your relationship to Little Women, Claire? So I looked this up before I got on here with you because I don't necessarily remember reading the novel, but I do remember that I was gifted, maybe as an eight-year-old, a set of abridged Little Women books. Mm -hmm. And they were, I looked it up and they were the portraits of Little Women. Okay. Have you heard of these? 
No, I, you're not the first person to say that they had an abridged Little Women as okay. a kid, but this I don't know. Portraits so, of Little Women. Yeah. So, oh. you're looking at it because I'm just going to send it to you. No, I'm seeing it. So, every page has a. So, there's four books, and they all have a girl on the front. Yeah. As so like Meg's story. story. Yeah. 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 And I must have read these because I had a distinct knowledge that one of the girls died in it. And <laughs> because of that, they kind of freaked me out. Yes. And that's also how I know that I read The Secret Garden as a child, even though I don't necessarily remember it because I remember that there was like a very sick child in that book. So I don't know, I think that's, that's an interesting thing to remember as a disabled, young disabled <laughs> reader. But I think I, I was gifted these books probably for Christmas or birthday. And I remember mm-hmm. them being quiver. I'm sorry if you can't get your right relative for giving these stories. I just don't remember. But they were like, oh, these are stories about girls like you and growing up as a girl. And it was positioned as very much books about the every girl that I would find very relatable. Yeah. And so what was your reaction to these? So it, I don't even know if they were abridged because they say the author is Susan Beth Pfeffer inspired by Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. And then there's a ghost story spinoff. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, I didn't have that, whatever that is. I just had, I think, Joe, I must have had Beth and maybe mm-hmm. Meg. Okay. So that's, these are interesting. I, I'm not familiar, but they're very interesting. And Joe looks, it's always funny when someone is Joe and the hair is perfect, the makeup is perfect, not a stitch out of place. <laughs> yeah, because this is, would also have been the era of the heyday of American Girl and those, I can't remember what they were called, but those American history books. Oh, Dear America. Yeah, this is very much marketed towards that type of reader. I have to, sorry, we have to, so we have to take a pit stop here. Did you know that there is a American Girl character named Mary Ellen who is a polio survivor and has partial paralysis? Yes. Yeah, you're familiar? Okay. A fun fact about me, I worked at the American Girl Store in 2010. Okay, hold on. Sorry. Pause. <laughs> Tell me more. You worked at American Girl. <laughs> yes, it was my first big girl job between my freshman year of college and my sophomore year. There used to be a store in all of America, and I worked on the floor with the girl of today. Okay, slay. Yes. So, so you, I, yeah, I don't need to tell you about Mary Ellen and yeah. the disabled American girl. And you a lot about the dolls that weren't around when I was a child, but mm-hmm. I got a lot of feedback from customers asking for more disability representation. Yeah. Did they have yeah. American girl? So, you know, I don't know there's anything to add to my manifestation list. Oh my God. I'm going to also manifest that for you. I want that for you so bad. <laughs> they did. I know we we had, they had Joss who has hearing loss. That was a couple of years ago. And you're the that I am. I, yes. Sure. <laughs> and I know in the Girl of Today line, they have crutches, diabetes care kits. They have a newer modern wheelchair design, which is interesting. So there's definitely stuff available. There's always room for improvement. Okay, sorry. Going back to Little Women. So your experience was the Voices Portraits of Little Women series, which is interesting. We have not touched on these. We're going to need to learn more. So that was kind of your first impression. Yeah. And do, based on that, do you have a good idea of which March sister you are? I think, I mean, obviously there's this Joe. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about portrayals of little women that I most identify with, when 2020 rolled around, I was at my final grad school residency 
And my friend Olivia, Olivia Swabley, if she listens to this, she's a brilliant children's book editor. And she's my classmate at Hemlin. She said, oh, on our break day yesterday, a bunch of us went and saw Good a Girl Likes Little Women. And she was mm-hmm. like, it's so rad. They flipped the ending. <laughs> and so I, I went to see it a couple of weeks ago on my 30th birthday. And I was staying in the theater. I was like, why am I crying? Yeah. <laughs> like it, just, it caught me completely off guard. And so that is kind of where my exposure to the story went. Okay. So I would say Joe, but I also... I think I identify a lot with Beth in terms of her being the youngest. Okay. I have an older brother, and then my mom said the family, I have an older male cousin as well. And so I just remember <laughs> trying to keep up with them and, yeah. you know, wanting so desperately for them to think that I was cool and <laughs> I could do all the things that they were doing, which physically I couldn't. And then a lot of times, also, I was too young. And I think about that a lot in terms of, Obviously, just being the youngest, but also being disabled, and and Beth in the book is sick, and that impacts her experiences as well, and how she fits into the family. So, I think maybe a mix of Joe and Beth. Okay, so Joe, son, Beth, Moon, I can see that for mm-hmm. sure. And we've definitely talked about Beth as a disabled character on the show before. She comes up; she's mentioned a little in this chapter, so we'll get into it a bit. Do you want to recap, Claire, chapter 45, Daisy and Demi? Yes. So it is about Meg's twins. Yes. <laughs> and it, it describes their personalities pretty in-depth, boy-girl twins, mm-hmm. and kind of which members of the family they're endured to, and different things they do with each of the members of the family and at the end the boy twin confesses that he has kissed the girl (laughs) yes he does and that leads to i'm sorry but (laughs) no it's great this is a shorter chapter it's a lot about the babies being cute and then at the very end demi announces that he's kissed a little girl that he knows named mary and this leads to a revelation about Joe and Professor Bear, which continues. We call the Bear Man. <laughs> the Bear Man, yeah. Yeah. So what struck me here is interesting. We, we'll maybe begin at the end here because we want to get into the meat, the feminist meat of the chapter, which is Demi announces that he kissed little Mary. Professor Bear says, Proofed, thou beginnest early. What did the little Mary say to that? And He says, Demi says, oh, she liked it, and she kissed me, and I liked it. Simple. Love that. Consent. (laughs) Don't little boys like little girls? And Joe says, you precocious chick. Who put that into your head? (laughs) Which surprised me. I didn't know that they have to explain of chick. (laughs) I think she means chick as in, because he's a boy. Chick as in little baby bird. Yeah. But what I appreciate here is, when Demi says, don't little boys like little girls, Joe is like, who put that into your head? Where did you get that idea? Who told you that it had to be that way? That means like... Yeah. It does say that she's enjoying the innocent revelation, but she's saying, who put that into your head? And then Demi sees Professor Bear and Joe smiling at each other and goes, do great boys like great girls too, Fesser? Meaning, are you and, and Joe in love, Professor? 
<laughs> so it's kind of clumsy and Professor Bear couldn't tell a lie, so he gave the somewhat vague reply that he believed they did sometimes. And sometimes is again interesting for me there. <laughs> and it's these it's kind of a cloying bit of the book, right? Or at least I think so. But what's interesting to me are these little bumpers, these little speed bumps that Alcott puts in there. Who put that into your head? And they do sometimes. It's leaving that little bit of space for Alcott, who was someone who said, I've been in love with so many girls and never once the least bit with any man, to be like, this isn't always the way. I don't know. How do you read that? I, I think it was interesting to me to revisit because I read some of the beginning of the book as well. Mm -hmm. And perhaps this is because I read portraits of women in the, yes. the, the novel. I was surprised by how often the narrator breaks out for all this. And now, for the benefit of the reader, we shall describe <laughs> these girls. And so sort of putting in these little asides of commentary, I said, I didn't remember that. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, we get this, it's not just the dialogue, but this kind of, wi these winks in between the dialogue from our narrator. And we kind of see the flirtation between Joe and Bear from this very innocent, childlike perspective, which it's occurring to me now that I say that is maybe a way of getting around some of the more gory details of romance and flirtation. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think that romance plays a really interesting role in Little Women. Again, going back to the Greta Gerwig adaptation, or I've also seen a 1994 adaptation. So yeah. in both of those, I sort of wonder, are the professor and Joe and Love, do they have chemistry? <laughs> what? You know what I mean? I do know what you mean, yeah. Or with Lori, who, with, who is more in love with Lori is kind of the question that I keep <laughs> asking. It's, <laughs> it's really interesting because a lot of times in modern day romance novels, there's shipping and all mm -hmm. of that. So kind of, I find it interesting just that for me, that question persists. Yeah, it persists. I continue to remain unconvinced by Joe and Bear. And it's funny, when you mentioned the movie earlier, you said that your friend said that Greta flipped the ending, right? Mm -hmm. Which is true in that we kind of get this very self-conscious Professor Bear is the ending of a book she's writing. It's not the way that her own life is ending up. But in the actual book, after Beth has died, Joe is up in her attic thinking to herself, well, now I'm going to be a literary spinster with a pen for a spouse. That's yeah. the life for me. And then she falls asleep and she's woken up by Lori, which allows for the possibility <laughs> that everything that follows this pronunciation that I'm going to be a literary spinster with a pen for a spouse is just a dream. That's the true ending for Joe. That is what Alcott said she intended for Joe, is that Joe was going to be a literary spinster and paddle her own canoe. So in the book, we get Joe saying that, falling asleep, and waking up in a chapter where Amy and Laurie are married, Professor Bear is coming to visit, the romance is kicking off. <laughs> right. Cause it was yeah. when, I, when I reread this chapter, my first initial thought was, oh, these are all the chapters that the film adaptations that I've seen kind of gloss over in yeah. nine seconds. It's like a sweeping ending, and, and you know, in the in those adaptations that I've seen, you don't get to really know that the children they had, just the knowledge that they went on to do that yep. and to have the school and all of that. <laughs> I, yeah, it's, I'm going to think about that dream sequence. Yeah, all of that. Yeah, it's amazing to me. Yeah, so we don't 
in in this chapter, this is sort of a courtship process. Next chapter, Joe is going to propose to Professor Bear. It's going to go down. But in this chapter, we're this close to it, and we are getting hints about what's going on through the eyes of a two-year-old. <laughs> it's very interesting. What's also interesting to me is that Mr. March has a pretty prominent role in this chapter. He's kind of absent for most yeah. of the book, but he's very present here. He's doing gymnastics with Demi, the boy, and Professor Bear is coming to see him all the time. And Mr. March thinks that Professor Bear just loves his company and wants to hang out with him. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, Professor Bear is so much older than Joe. In the last chapter, he was looking at Lori with an air of lost envy of lost youth. <laughs> and Joe and Laura are the same age, right? <laughs> right. I think, think for me, there's Laurie has kind of always represented where the women come from and mm -hmm. their whole story because she grew up with them. Yeah. And so I think that's an interesting contrast to mm -hmm. compare to the professor. Yeah. And he, yeah, Professor, that's interesting. Professor Bear never knew Joe as a girl or a child, right? He's only gotten getting this adult striving version of her, which is very different. Yes. And he's hanging out all the time with Mr. March. I don't know how close they are in age, but it's very possible that he's closer to Mr. March in age than he is to Joe, and they're that's just buddies. <laughs> that's what I assumed. But they get along really well. They... Definitely, if Mr. March can, it takes until the end of this chapter for Mr. March to even realize that Professor Bear might have feelings for Joe. So obviously, whatever friendship he has with Mr. March is genuine. It's very curious. I, how do you feel? How do you come down on Professor Bear? Are you pro, con? Well, I guess where it comes off for me is I, I appreciate Joe as a character more than mm -hmm. who she ends up with. I agree. A way to answer that question, I feel like it's sort of skirting. Yeah, and it reminds me of. I think it's so interesting when you talk to people. We have the medium that just popped into my head that has a lot of ship wars for me is Gilmore Girls. It's like yep. I team Jess or team Dean or team Logan. When I was watching that show as a teenager, I was team Marie. Not so much as an adult, but I was looking for with Joe. Similarly to Rory, I was looking for no. bookish, smart, driven character, <laughs> and it doesn't necessarily have so much matter in in the case of Little Women, who she ends up with, to me, personally. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree on every point, except my team, when it comes to Gilmore Girls, is Rory and Paris. That is the match for the ages, oh, in my yeah. opinion. <laughs> but again, Alcott knew that she was also, she was burned out on, on what, exactly what you're talking about. She's like, all these girls write to me about who the little women are going to end up with, as if marriage is the sole end name of a woman's life. And she's like, well, I won't marry Joe to Lori to please anyone. That was important for her. And I'm going to make a funny match, which is Professor Bear, and I expect heaps of wrath to be poured on my head. So she knows that she's making this kind of weird, unappealing match for Joe. <laughs> Right. And I think often you look at the, the time period the book was mm -hmm. written, it was common for that to happen. It was common for yeah. young women to make men that were much older than they were. Yeah, exactly. And even just generally, it was women married young and men married old. Lori gets married young here, but that's not by any means the standard. It would have been probably normal for him to wait around another 10 or 15 years before getting married, whereas 
women would have to get married a lot sooner. It also wasn't that unusual for, in a family that had several daughters, for one daughter to kind of just stay behind, not marry, look after the parents as they aged. So Joe is in some ways on a conventional path here as far as not getting married, writing to support herself and her parents. But there was all this fan demand, all this reader demand that she end up with someone. And I think a lot of this is Alcott going, oh, is this what you asked for? Is this? <laughs> and what's funny is we get this prominent friendship between Professor Bear and Mr. March, which really just underscores that in a lot of ways, Joe is marrying her dad. <laughs> right. Which, again, is something that is joked at in a lot of women or told a lot. Oh, you're just going to marry the guy that is the most like your dad. (laughs) 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 The season stereotype has been around for as long as it has. Yeah, clearly. So why do you think that Alcott genuinely found anything appealing about the Professor Bear character? Is there anything to actually like here or was she just trolling 100%? It's hard to know. What I I do like about Professor Bear is that Joe went off into the world and and met him. And I think he, because he's a professor, he could sort of match her with, but also Laurie could do that in a different way. He was Mm -hmm. freedom and adventurous. And and so, I I mean, I don't think it, I don't think she, Alcott, flooded it. It was just like, the worst version possible of Shujo. <laughs> I think they are a match in some ways, which all of the most compelling ship wars are. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I, I think there. Yeah, get enough. Mm-hmm. I think in in a lot of ways we know. So there's an excellent biography of Louisa May Alcott and her father Bronson Alcott called Eden's Outcast by John Madison, which we've talked about a lot on the show. And that's kind that's the place to go if you want to learn about Alcott's relationship with her father. It could be very complicated. Bronson was a pretty troubled guy. He had a lot of mental illness. They had similar issues actually with mental illness, with depression, with suicidality. Madison mm-hmm. sort of suggests that Alcott may have been, if using modern diagnostic terms, maybe they would have been bipolar. So mm-hmm. there were a lot of similarities there. And I think that a lot of the times what that meant for Alcott as a child was that her father was an unstable presence. He was very loving, but not necessarily a provider, not necessarily able to provide. And he really privileged the life of the mind and moral living over making money. <laughs> yeah. Which I don't think it's fair to call him a deadbeat. One, just because sometimes people have disabilities that prevent them from making a living, especially in the 1800s. <laughs> Let's yeah. just start there. And also, part of the reason why the family lost their money was that Bronson Alcott was running a very successful school in Boston, and he integrated the school and had Black children attend. Right. And some of the wealthy white families were really upset about that and pulled their kids and eventually there just weren't enough students to keep the school open. So they lost all the money they'd put into that adventure. But he refused to go back to just teaching white students. He was insistent that this be an integrated school, which was radical for the time. He was was very ahead of his time. And I think, to your point, it's interesting that this novel has persisted as long as it has as a Mm -hmm. coming-of-age story, because I think a lot of coming to age of all of the adults that I know is coming to know your parents and as full realized human beings mm-hmm. and not as, as your mom or dad. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a huge part of making the transition from being a child to an adult, like realizing they had a full life before oh, you. Yeah. And all of their own complexities and problems. Mm-hmm. And how are you going to address that as their adult child? That's so interesting. So are you saying like maybe she's exploring her father in the character of Bear and not Mr. Marked? She's giving no, like... I, not necessarily. Or, yeah. I think looking at the real life relationship... Mm-hmm. As it's been reported between Alcott and her father. Yeah. The relationship between Joe and her father persists in such interesting ways throughout the entire novel. And also, it can, I think, parts of it are explored in Professor. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that he is a stand in. I think that there's layers to it, probably. For sure. Now that I think about it, a lot of the validation of joe as a boy comes from it's her father who says you need to be the man of the house when i'm gone he calls her his son joe and that's not necessarily explicit validation of joe's desire to be a boy marmy doesn't do that to my knowledge meg Mm -hmm. is certainly you have to be a young lady beth is like i understand that this is painful for you but it really is Mr. March that kind of understands Joe's desire to be a boy. And in real life, Bronson Alcott once called Lou Alcott his only son. So right. I'm wondering if there's something in creating a dad-like, like a Bronson Alcott type figure for Joe to marry, if some of it is actually just about this is the figure who affirmed my gender. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then somebody else will never know, right? Yeah. Because the only person that can affirm their identity is no longer here. And yeah, I will admit that all of my understanding of Louisa May Alcott's identity is literal, but most of it came from TikTok and it oh my mind. <laughs> again, it's just stuff that about the literary canon that you're just not. Yeah. Ah, and you're thinking, wait, this makes so much sense. Yeah. But also looking at it through the lens of so many young women have been gifted this book as I was. Mm-hmm. They, they have a girl. <laughs> You. <laughs> I know it's wild. It's wild. And I, I, there, I know there's a lot of lesbians out there who identify with Joe. There's a lot of trans men out there who are like, I saw myself in Joe. I think probably a lot of what you've seen on TikTok came from my research, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> but I love that. I love that the discourse has moved over there. The other thing, I mean, Joe is the one who says when Dami's like, don't little boys like little girls? Joe says, who put that into your head? And then pr- Professor, when Demi asks the Professor, do great boys like great girls too? He says, I believe they do sometimes. And so it's this thing, who put that into your head? And sometimes are little acknowledgements that this is not completely the norm or like this is not the only right. way that things can be. And it is Professor Bear who's saying sometimes. And if this book had been written in the modern day, I don't yeah. think I would have blinked an eye at that. Yeah. We're constantly, it reminds me of when you shop for little boys' clothing and it's just like, you're just stunned. You're And it's yeah. just the heteronormativity of it all. And these women are also expecting boys and girls to fall into yeah. it. It really was radical at the mm-hmm. time it was published to even suggest there are other options. Yeah. Sometimes. What could that mean? I wonder. Obviously, we don't get a ton of elaboration. Obviously, Professor Bear is like, well, there's a word that hasn't been invented yet called gay. (laughs) But we said it in other ways to mean other things. And that was happening. Emily Dickinson was only a few miles away. Walt Whitman was in the mix, right? Right. (laughs) And these were people who were 
to vary with various degrees of openness, sometimes very open, living their lives and loving being in, in relationships that we would call queer today. So interesting when they say sometimes, because I think to me mm-hmm. that kind of is like a wink up in private. Behind oh. closed doors or in secret spaces. Yes. When we've known that queer people have used lingo and code words and sort of had a different type of language, the accessibility at that time that not everybody was able to pick up on. Yeah, for sure. So I think a lot here is in code. A lot of it is a compromise of the kind of the ending that Alcar really wanted to give this character. And it's, it's funny to me. And I think, again, it speaks volumes that we are getting this last look at the couple before the proposal scene through the eyes of a kid who has this incredibly childlike understanding about how all of this works. Right. And we're not getting... Amy and Lori had the three chapter long negotiation and they're talking about their lives and their goals. And this is not, this courtship is not that intense. I'll be interested next week to get into the actual proposal scene and see how that dynamic plays out. But here, I think I'm satisfied with the little bits, the little winks, the little nudges that Alcott is saying that this is a compromise and there are some people who prefer other things. (laughs) Some subtle pushing back in some ways for as much as otherwise this chapter. It really seems that Daisy and Demi are kind of falling into gender roles pretty neatly. Right. And there's a lot of, for like, that we're gassing up these kids. Yep. <laughs> so smart and so capable and so amazing. She learns they are some of the most amazing kids. And it's like, what? Yeah. I'm yeah. kind of the part that stuck out to me. I should have highlighted it. Not- of course, they were the most remarkable children ever born, as will be shown. Right. Why is it? It's to your little mind, Demi, replied the sage, storming the yellow head respectively. What is a little mind? It is something that makes your, which makes your body move. As the spring <laughs> made the wheels go in my watch when I shorted you. That was really interesting to me as a disabled person. Because now yeah. I'm at an age where people in my life have children and they have been asked mm-hmm. me, like, what is all of you? And I tend to try to use adult explanations from all I'll talk about cerebral palsy. And I'll talk about how it comes from the brain. And so sometimes I'll say things like, oh, your brain is just different than mine. And I'm like, yeah, my brain tells my body to move differently than yours. I just yeah. have that, that explaining your brain is the thing that makes your body move was really interesting to me in that. Yeah, I, that stood out to me too, just in the con- in the context of the discussion that I knew we were going to have. Because Demi is such a active child that we he's always moving always on the go and this connection this link to the mind body connection is mm-hmm. very transcendentalist of them the body is a vessel kind of thing but also it, this is a place where there's not any acknowledgement that sometimes brains work differently and people's interior clocks move differently and different watches have different ways that they move <laughs> so yeah yeah let's link back to your interpretation of Joe's been handling our divergent or, or yeah. all of that, yeah. So I think Joe is someone who, for whom, I think it's maybe even more pronounced with Beth. Beth is someone for whom any kind of social interaction is extremely anxiety-inducing and stressful. And that we could maybe call social anxiety. With Joe, she has some of the same issues, but with Joe, I think... There's one chapter in particular where she's going around making house calls with Amy and Amy can't believe Joe's behavior and is like, 
you are doing everything wrong and kind of keeps giving Joe roles to play and Joe keeps putting on these masks, but it's exhausting for her and it's curbing who she really is. (laughs) That and Joe's idiosyncrasies and her cycling moods and her difficulties communicating and connecting with everybody, with many people, I would say. I think that points to, like we talked about with John Madison, he looks at Alcott as having maybe been bipolar or manic depressive. And I think there's a case to be made for Joe as autistic or being on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. I think that that shows up. It kind of even shows up in Joe making an unconventional match. This is a guy that no one else can really see the appeal of. And she's like, he just gets me. (laughs) And then- So it's the question of, could he be that neurodivergent also? Yeah. And if, if he's connecting so much with Mr. March, who again is based on Bronson, and Bronson we knew had neurodivergence, then yeah, maybe. Maybe this is just their little club. <laughs> I mean, works for them. <laughs> works for them. Yeah. It's no, if you've been listening to the pod, you know I kind of, I have issues with Professor Bear. But I don't know. The bear that I like the most is the one from the 1933 version where he is portrayed as someone who's warm and friendly and kind to children and loves playing. And this chapter gets that side of him. And that's something that I can see that that is appealing to me. So I think that's that on that. And next week, Joe is going to propose marriage. (laughs) So we'll see how that goes for her. Claire, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people find you online? How can they support you? Where can they buy where you see yourself? Yes, so I am at Claire's, T-L-A-I-R-E, number four, E-S-T. It is my name, if you read it. People have been confused by that. I'm at that username on Instagram and TikTok. And I guess nearly I'm venturing into threads to see if I meet other cool people. You can buy where you see yourself, wherever books are sold. I always like to give them a plug to the indies because they've been very supportive of the book. So, or your yeah. local library, local libraries. Okay, amazing. As always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever you buy, where you see yourself. Package deal. That's the move. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> You can also now find us on Instagram. We are at Joe's Boys Pod. You can follow us there for news, updates, sneak previews of forthcoming episodes, Q&As with guests. It's all a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave a rating and a review if you enjoy the show, and we will see you in a couple weeks. (laughs) 